Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's talk some economics. Every time we talk economics, we go get an actual economist. What a concept, huh? And this here be one of those certified bona fide economists, fellas. He works for a government agency, but these are his and his alone opinions. We love having him on. He's one of our favorites. And because I know it annoys him greatly, I will call him Dr. Stephen Popick. How are you, sir? Ah, it's not so bad. I'm doing great today. It's a beautiful Friday. A little bit chilly here in D.C. Hey, you show up in a collared shirt. We're actually going to give you the nomenclature. You look halfway professional today, my friend. <laughs> um, uh, to, to be fair, I have a work meeting after this, so I need to look professional. Yeah, every now and then I'll be I'll be dressed up doing one of these, and somebody's like, "Why are you wearing a tie?" It's like, "Well, I had TV. I had a TV hit right after that, so I had to like dress up or something." <laughs> so if I'm dressed up on her tell, you know, I got a media hit right after, or right before, or something like that. All right, brother. Hope you're having a good New Year. New Year, same problems. I want to start here. We talk every time you come on here, I talk about like the numbers and how this just spins our head and explain. I think we need to just start with some basic building blocks of how an economy actually works, because we hear bits and pieces of the news story and we don't put them all together. We know the financial success for a person in life has a very basic formula to it. Vaguely, there's some exceptions, but the rule is education, job, housing. That's the three-legged stool for financial success, give or take. Now, there's other factors and there's stability and what kind of career and whatever, whatever. But those are the three things, right? Well, we have a weird labor market and we have a housing crisis that we don't really want to talk about outside of, you know, the nerdosphere that keeps bringing it up and trying to get it into the conversation. Yep. If we're going to have a healthy economy, at some point, we need to talk about these basic building blocks, things like housing and not just the unemployment number but employment that can get folks into the housing, which gives them equity, which is much more important than income equity, because that continues. This is the basic stuff of economics. We don't spend a lot of time talking about even among economists. So here, let's, let's, let's break down one thing you didn't say that was important about housing, right? If there's jobs over here, people that are over here need to go somewhere and potentially live near where the jobs are. Now, there are the remote jobs these days, but let's talk about the vast majority of workers that are not working remotely or working from home, right, to, to, to that extent. Um, solving the housing problem means that we have better labor mobility to go to places where the jobs are. And without that, you don't have a well-functioning labor market. Right, because the people that you want to have working in your city can't get to your city because your city doesn't have housing or the housing is way too bloody expensive. And the the truth is, you know, this is not a national level solution. Uh, it's not a national level solution in, in the UK, it's not a national level solution in Japan, it's not a national level solution in the United States, there are things that the federal governments of those countries and others can do to nudge things into the right way, to allow for more building, to allow for more density options, um, et cetera. But these are fundamentally things that happen at the local level. 
with our local politicians, you know, the folks that actually do things that we never hear about. Um, and it's these local level decisions that oftentimes are preventing um, the development of housing or the types of housing that our cities and countries and counties need. Yeah. And let's talk about the local part of that real quick. San Francisco legendarily has some of the strictest building codes in America. It's really hard to build something new in San Francisco, not just because it's extraordinarily expensive, but because and the earthquake building code, and the earth and th look, that's Which something they don't talk, yeah. that's something they don't talk about. You have to build something much differently there because of the earthquake stuff. If you build on the beach, you got to build at hurricane strength. That's part of it. But they have super strict building codes. Them, yeah. They have strict building codes. They have historical building codes where you have to fit into the neighborhoods, all this. It's really hard to build there. Then you go to like a suburb of Houston where there's almost no rules. Yeah. And you well, can build also them anything you want. Most of the residential land in San Fran is zoned single family. Right. So you can't build multifamily housing or a can't even build a, housing. You can't even build a duplex that looks like a single family house. Right. Well, there's plenty very, of those. Which are very popular in a lot of urban, ex-urban, suburban places now because you can just it's e it's well easy to manage and it's cost effective and it gives people things. The point is, that's just one example. We have yeah. all these metropolises, we have all this suburban land, county, not can like I live just past the county line. So I'm in the county, not the city. That's a huge difference in property tax, even though it's only about a thousand yards in a straight line. These things are why this gets so complicated. Where do we talk about the local solutions, though? Because, look, we have a national and international audience here. They're all like, well, what do we do about it? Is it a legislative thing? Is it a zoning thing through your councils? Where do we even start with this stuff? I think where you start is you have to be involved in whatever your local board or local committee that makes the zoning decisions for your jurisdiction, your area that you live in, to be actively involved in those. So those, you know, like in my in my city of Alexandria, we have, you know, um, a zoning board and they will look at zoning changes or approve variances to zoning. And so it's part of what I do is I try to stay abreast of the developments, the applications that are there, it's all on a website. It's all easy to find. The meetings are every, you know, third Wednesday of the month or whatever, you know. Um, and you look at that and, and literally I have a letter that I send to that planning board and to the city council on occasion to support initiatives that build the types of housing that we need that will allow more people of more varied income levels and more varied skills to live in our city. Because I think that that makes our city more vibrant. Right. So, now you're, and you're a DC area. So let's just be blunt here. Another expensive yes. area, but an area that needs a very young workforce. They need a lot of those recent college grads for a lot of reasons, not just the government jobs, but the support jobs. And you need a lot of labor. You need a lot of non-college education labor for all the, supporting areas that's where this problem gets bad because now how do you have housing that's hard enough to build in the first place but you got to get it affordable enough to have the workforce you need to support the city that you're building it in so your Can workforce that that the you, right way you're so also so the workforce that you need you know doesn't have to commute two hours to get into your city to to work there you know um yeah, but see, but that's it's a local level. The thing is, you know, with a lot of these issues, the voices of no can have a lot more power, right? Because it's 
the the so-called detrimental effect, if there is one, right, is concentrated amongst a very small sliver of individuals that have a very big um, incentive to yell and scream for the vast majority of the population in the in the jurisdiction, it would either have no benefit or slight marginal benefit, right? So folks don't take the time because it's not worth it to them at an individual level to let the city know, hey, we wanna, we know it doesn't really do anything for us, but we know it does something for the folks that would be, you know, serving us coffees in the morning as we go into work. <laughs> You know, so they don't write their letters. So the only thing that city council has is a lot of angry people. Um, so think about that. Like it's like that, that. That's a that's a classic problem of where the benefits are and where the costs are. So if the costs are isolated to just a few individuals and the benefits are spread out, even if the benefits are dramatically in the aggregate out, you know, outweigh the costs, it's the people that are benefiting. You know, don't. Don't participate. Don't speak up. Don't make those uh, the cases, right? And this that's just our human nature. Yeah. Steve so it, it's joining us. Here, let me not to interrupt you. Let me interrupt you and ask no you this question though. With that, this is not a new problem. No. The what the wealthy, by and large, wealthy people own homes and own land. So you have the wealthier people are always going to want to protect their investment, understandably, in their land and their property. That includes property values. That includes what kind of neighborhood it is, all that sort of stuff. They're the haves. The people needing housing are the have-nots, but the housing is a problem. This is a very, very, very old problem. It is. Um, you know, and we've made we've we've made changes in this country to try to um allow more people to have housing. I mean, keep, let's keep in mind, go back a hundred years. Housing was, you know, land, right. Was the pro the property of the very rich, uh, you were middle class. You did not own your place that you lived. You did not own the land. We were one of the first countries if maybe the, not the first, but definitely the first few to push over, push for this thing called the 30 year mortgage, right? Before that existed, you had to buy a house and have it all paid off within five to 10 years, you know, which, which was beyond the capacity for pretty much, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of American households. So now we get this 30 year mortgage backed by the government to, to some degree uh, that becomes an option that does allow for homes to be more affordable to a larger swath of the population. That is why today you have uh, Probably about, a, I think it's around probably a 66, 67, 68% home ownership rate, right? So the median U.S. household owns their house or at least has a mortgage on their house. This is in contrast to a lot of other countries that don't have the 30-year mortgage. And you can find those and they still have sort of those more antiquated systems. And it's more traditional for, for, for people to rent. Now, those countries where it's more traditional for people to rent, have other vehicles to allow people to build wealth um, and their housing markets aren't completely as wackadoodle as ours. How do we talk about this? Stephen Popovnik joining us, economist. How do we talk about this as the problem it is? Because we've talked about it before. The housing crisis is not of the last few years. It's not of the last administration or this administration. This has been going on for a while but it's going to be a huge problem going forward. Here's the thing. We know this is right up your alley. This is what you do for a living. 
housing is used for an indicator for a reason, because if you build a house, it's not just the house that the family's going to live in. It doesn't matter if it's an apartment or a townhome or a multifamily or single family home. It's the same formula. There's something like 26 trades go into building one house. There's all the materials that go in this. There's the economic, all those, uh, all those trades jobs everybody wants to keep getting more and more of. That's an indicator of whether those are doing well or not. Are we building houses? Because you got to have all those trades to build a house. So that's an indicator. And all the things that you go to the department stores or Amazon to buy to fill up said house. Right. So housing such an indicator. Why do we have this cognitive disconnect of going, we have a housing issue. There's no way this isn't an economic issue going forward if you don't fix your housing issues as you go along. We just, I know an economist can do that, but in the discourse, we can't seem to put those two things together. Uh, we can't, again, you know, it is, um, you have folks who like the neighborhoods that they have, who like the places where they live and they don't like to see them change and that's human nature and that's understandable. But when you don't want to see something change, uh, as, an, as an example, we have a development here in Alexandria um, that was primarily for you know some of our lower income families. And the owners of that property wanted to expand it, make it a little bit taller, add two more stories to it, essentially. And the, the folks right around where that development was, it's a very nice development, um, pitched a fit saying it would you know change their property values you know it would alter their views they'd be more shade you know it would it would be not as good right um and so it was the you know you, you someone who's two miles away doesn't even know about that you know but again like that that's the i think that ultimately is the issue the the costs are born right by, by a very small silver folks that have a very big incentive to 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 be upset um, and I don't even know if they're right to be upset, but, but they can be, they are upset. They have reasons for it. I understand those reasons. And then the benefits are spread more diffusely. That, that's all, this is a problem as old as government. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, Stephen from Poverty joining us. There's a couple hard and fast formulas in economics. Uh, things like population growth for economic growth. You got to have a birth rate or you got to have an immigration. One or the other, your economy shrinks. That's just a formula. Like, there's no getting around that. Sort of technically. All right, don't get your PhD. Yeah, generally speaking, yeah, population growth is economic growth. Population growth is economic growth. We have things like the dollar goes up and down in value. That affects things. That's a formula. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's true. Do we have a basic formula that people can base off of with housing? Because things like unemployment and all that, but 
housing seems to be something that's just one thread that goes through just about everything when we start talking about economies. Is there a formula that we can talk about and kind of apply to some of this to get it down to my level that I can understand it from your level, the policymakers who study this thing and understand it through and through? That's a good question. So what I would say for, for someone like you, what I would focus on is a housing affordability measure. It's just a simple no number, right? You know, what percentage of people could, could afford, you know, the set amount of, of, of house, right? How affordable is housing? And the National Association of Realtors has a number. National Association of Home Builders has a number. I'm certain there's a myriad number of government agencies that have a number too, right? But if I'm looking to understand how the housing market is working, is working I'm looking at housing affordability, right? So can people afford to buy a house? That's, a, you know, and of course that's affected by the size of houses, what goes into them and also what the interest rates are, right? So we know, um, and how many houses there are that are being sold. Like, so we knew that a couple of years ago, right before COVID, we actually were having pretty decent housing affordability numbers. We still had a shortage of housing, but interest rates were so low that housing was more affordable to folks. That's good. We've seen a, a spike up in the lack of housing affordability, so to speak. Uh, in the last couple of years, thanks to uh, one continued declines in, in, in inventory uh, being available. Obviously house prices went up a lot and interest rates went up. Um, and so that just means people are more locked in, right? So so if I was focused on something, I would just look at, you know, a standard housing affordability, housing affordability metric and see how that's changing over time. And, you know, we could pick a measure to say, you know, we think that the housing market was well functioning back here at this date. So that's our benchmark. And we're watching us if we're above our benchmark or below our benchmark. That might be the easiest heuristic for, for someone to look at. Yeah, Stephen Povnick, economist extraordinaire talking how, okay, we've been talking about messaging and the economics is a hard thing to message. On a good day, it's still hard to message. However, I have been critical of this particular presidential administration, the Biden administration, because I don't think their messaging on the economy has been very good at all. It's been bad, in my opinion. It's not been cohesive whatsoever. The president has come out and said this, and I'm going to quote him here. He's talking about uh, 3.5 trillion. This is a Reuters article. I'll link to it. 3.5 trillion in manufacturing technology over the next decade. We all know how investment over the next decade sound bites work out, but that's neither here nor there. Here's the quote. Quote, this is not about getting to a level spot. This is about going to a whole new plateau. We're the only country in the world who's come out of the crisis stronger than we went in. What the hell is the president talking about? So I, are you keying off the word plateau there? Here's the thing. I understand on an economic graph that there's plateaus. The problem is, in a post-Jimmy Carter America, nobody in America wants to hear the word plateau and economy at the same time, no, even we, if it's in a non-negative sense. Is that fair to say? We want to hear it's always sunrise in America again, to, to quote another president, right? Fair, but, but this is a comms thing, not a math yeah. problem. Do you want to say plateau to an economy that is actually not that bad on paper, but does have some dark spots. But the yeah. perception is that it's a mess and the messaging is what bridges those two things together. No, no, he I'm not sure this is the no. way to go about this. I wouldn't have called this a plateau. I would say that we're climbing back up the ladder again, right? That That is what we're doing. And Biden is correct in the second part, like flip it. We're the only country in the world who's come out of the crisis stronger than we went in. We can argue that. But there are facts supporting that that statement that that we have come out of the COVID uh, recession in a much better overall position.
than most countries that are most similar to us, right? And we, you can make the, the very coherent and cogent argument. There are some factors that work against that, but as I said, like you, you can make this argument and it's supportable. So I would, I would have led personally with the, the, the second sentence and just left it at that. Um, you know, what he's talking about here is the, the, we just had an employment report drop literally this morning, about two hours ago. Um, and it was a very good employment report. It didn't, uh, we weren't, uh, it, we didn't unexpectedly miss expectations. We unexpectedly, unexpectedly. Went, went beyond expectations and had a better uh, job report than what we that we expect than, than, than what we might've been thinking about. We also positively saw that wage growth, which I know people want wage growth, but wage growth that's sort of been off of its own kilter, uh, adding to inflationary pressures in the economy, we saw wage growth sort of coming back down. And the picture that you can paint from, from this is it looks, based on the last couple of months, that we might be getting back to uh, a 3% inflation rate economy, you know, one that's sort of normal, uh, one with a normal well-functioning labor market, you know, getting back up to almost where we are where we were from the uh, at the beginning of the of the covid crisis you know so like this is a very positive jobs report jobs were up in a lot of different industries and, and i said wage growth was starting to come down a bit um so we're starting to see those inflationary pressures tamper out could this be the mythical soft landing that the fed's been trying to engineer it could be. Now, let's talk about the soft landing. We talked about this before. There's as much danger in coming off of inflation as there is in going up in inflation if it's not handled correctly, though, is there not? So you're talking about, about disinflation or deflation, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, here's the problem with deflation. You want to keep saving there. You want to keep saving because, um, you know, and so like that means there won't be as much investment potentially in the economy. So yeah, there's always dangers, right? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a reason why a lot of countries in the world, Andrew, have this inflation targeting approach for their central banks. And we don't have that in the U.S. We don't. Our central bank only ha has a dual mandate on inflation and employment. But there's not an, like a typical inflation target. Right. But but sort of unspoken, there's a general agreement that inflation at about two to three percentage points is kind of the sweet spot. So you sort of want to get back to that. But, you know, the, keep in mind that what the Fed's doing, Andrew, is. They're using uh, a, a lever that takes a lot of time to get moving to pull it down or pull it up and a lot of time to stop the motion. So they're they're trying to predict where we're going to be six months, nine months from now and where they're making their decisions. You know, so that's the danger. Right. If they misread the situation, they keep the they keep the lever moving up a little bit too long or moving down too long. Then we overshoot or undershoot and we don't we don't hit what we want to be. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.
Popnik. Okay, the big question everybody's concerned on, same question as last year, New Year, same problems, right? You've heard this once or twice in your life as an economist. SSDD. Are, are we going to have a R word? Is there going to be a recession in 2023? Okay, so I hate this word. I know. And I'm going to give my usual diatribe here. I know. We could have a recession with negative 1.1% GDP growth. We would not have a recession with 0.1% GDP growth. It's literally the same economy, right? So we shouldn't be keying. I, I, I get why we key on it. It's an easy metric, but I, I think, you know, an economic slowdown has costs just like an economic recession has costs. There are different degrees of it. You know, so we shouldn't think about it as like, could we, if we avoid the recession, woo, play the trumpets. That's great. But if we avoid the recession by barely avoiding it, there's still issues. So could we have a recession? Yes, absolutely. Could it be mild? Yes, absolutely. We've had recessions in the past that I think the average American was not even aware we had a recession. Right. Uh, thinking of like 1998 or around that time, we had a, we had a mini recession. It was kind of a blip. I don't think most people are registered on the at the, at the household level, um, you know. But we could, you know, certainly, you know, have a, a, a uh, you know a deeper one. But I think that's relatively unlikely right now. The data are showing that if we're going to have a recession, it's going to be quick and mild. Of course, we're we're assuming that everything else right now holds. Current trends hold. Nothing else goes crazy. COVID three doesn't take off. Russia doesn't invade yet another country. All those other things that can happen in the world. An asteroid doesn't hit. Who knows? There is one of those things, though, that is happening right now that has changed things. Last China is reopening. That is going to change things in the global economy and for the U.S. economy as China reopens from their COVID lockdown. Yes. Yeah. So that that is a, for the global economy, that's a positive thing. Right? That means, uh, means that, for example... Maybe my maybe my uh, my uh, component for my sleep number bed that's malfunctioning actually comes over on a ship. Um, this is a very first world of first world problems, there, Captain Privilege. But point noted. I just you know personal example of how the supply chain crises are still going on, are still affecting people. Um, but yes, that would that would have a benefit that would help accelerate economic growth across the world uh, with China reopening. Because those goods would be more easily, you know, flowing out of China, and their production would be would be occurring. So yeah. it's it's definitely better to have the better for the economy to be reopening. Don't know if it's better for health. Uh, we'll see if they have to shut down again because their COVID policies and their uh, COVID vaccine uh, do not seem to be particularly effective. Yeah, just one of those great unknowns that make economics so interesting and sexy and fun, right? Stephen Popovnik, our economist friend. I, I appreciate, yeah, I appreciate that. See, I want to do that when we talk to you, though, like talk about those basic building blocks. So when some see China's a big thing. But if we don't talk about those building blocks and we don't talk about the state of the economy, then you can't really talk about how China does or does not affect it. It all goes together. And that's why we keep having you on to explain this as we go along. Appreciate your time. Let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on, and how they can keep up with you until the next economic headline that we have to get you to come in and explain it to us. Uh, at some point, I'll start writing for uh, Ordinary Times again. Uh, one of my New Year's resolutions. We'll see how long I keep it. Like most Americans, I'll probably fail at some point. Sorry, Andrew, in advance. Uh, I, I, 
I'm also, you know, always, you know, watching what's happening on Twitter. As long as Twitter still exists, you can find me at Moto Economist on Twitter, where I do share out from a time to time takes on housing and sort of how the, the U.S. market is going. Ah, uh, Stephen Pobnick, always appreciate your time, my friend. You explained this well so that even I can understand it. And you usually give me stuff to go look up and read on, which I will now go and do. So I try to keep up with you better next time. Thanks for the time, sir. Happy to do it, man. You too, sir. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.